This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Generations Podcast. And now your hosts, Jeff and Kelly Leduff. Welcome to the Generations Podcast. I am Kelly Leduff um, with my better looking younger half, my father, Jeff Leduff. Um, for those folks here in Louisiana, know him as Chief of Police of the City of Baton Rouge for a long time, since retired, and now he's uh, got the fortune of being my business partner with Open Eyes Training Technology <laughs> and Consulting. But honestly, the uh, the business side of this is not you know what we're here to talk about. Our hope with the Generations Podcast is to have a conversation, and we really believe in Podcast 225 and the platform that they create to have conversations, you know, not only for the folks here locally, but nationally, and one of the things that we want to promote is what we live every day, and that's just father-son dynamic, whether that's, you know, mother-daughter, father-son, whatever it is, we just want people to have a conversation, Uh, understand your point of view, understand the, what I call older folk point of view, young folk point of view, and just have an honest conversation. Um, And one of the things that we thought would be the best way to kind of kick off our podcast before we have a whole bunch of guests is to have me just interview my dad. We talk about his career and there's some things that I want to put him on the spot about that I've never asked him that I want to know. And uh, I'm pretty sure if I want to know it, there's some other folks that want to know it as well. So we'll start it off. Well, my first question is, how, how you got to lead in all of this? I mean, I just want to know that. Uh, you know, I mean. I'm the host, you the talent. I, I, st- I started the generation, and I got to sit here and listen at you run all of this. You know? Uh, so, no. I, listen, I, I am excited about this. I truly am excited. Because I don't think people get to understand that, especially in, in today's world, in, in, in our inner cities, in our communities, uh, that a father and son not only can work together, be father and son, be best friends, but they can talk about anything. And that's that's the point I really want to make sure everybody get. But you did get the, the first part right. I am the better looking uh, of this tando. So, so let's, let's, yeah, I'm ready. Well, you know, I'm going to start off like this. So I think there's a lot of people that know your career in law enforcement. I want people to understand some of the things that you did prior to law enforcement. So you started the department in what year? And I started the year you were born. Uh, I, I was in the process when we were waiting for you. So 1983. Uh, so you was, started the process of being No, hired. I started the process when we, right about the time we found out that you were coming into the world, that we were expecting our child. And what, you know, Again, we weren't excited. See, you, you might, you know, we didn't talk to you about all of this. We weren't excited. Not that we didn't want a child, but we had, had a couple of miscarriages. Yeah, I was going to talk so about So it too. was an anxious time for us. Uh, you know, mama had, we almost lost mama mm-hmm. uh, with a miscarriage. And so being pregnant wasn't exciting, you know, like it is for some folks. We, we were scared. And... Uh, and you know everything went well, and uh, I was in the process. I was away from home, you know, trying to do all of that. And then finally, I got the call, and, and they messed over us. I'm still mad at the city of Baton Rouge for messing over us because all of a sudden, whomever the chief was, I, I think uh, I don't I don't know if who who exactly started the process, but uh, 
they came up with the idea that we should be in academy class that shave our mustaches, mm. right? Look, I've been having a mustache all my life. My top lip doesn't move when I talk. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, it, it looked bad. When it's I almost a deal a breaker, huh? I, look, I can hold my lip, man, and have a whole conversation with you, and you never know I'm holding my lip, right? So I have to have a mustache. So they told us, you have to shave it. So I shaved it. And uh, <laughs> they called us and said, well, we're going to postpone the academy. Mm. So... We went a couple of weeks and they called us. So my mustache was just coming back. I was feeling myself to say, well, we're going to have, we're going to start this coming Monday. So I had to shave my mustache. So I shaved it. I shaved my mustache three times, man, <laughs> before they finally gave us a start date. And we started, um, I started the academy on July 18th. You were born on July 30th. So right, a couple so, of days before my, I was here. Yeah, I started just a few days before you, uh, you came. So back then, so you're talking about the 80s. Obviously, that was a different time in the department for a lot of reasons, pay-wise. What was the starting pay back then uh, on the department? Man, under the under the poverty rate, man, we, we were making like, I want to say, 800 and some dollars a month. Mm. Uh, I mean, mom and I together working. She worked for the state. I worked for the city parish government as a police officer. She was with, um, at, at that time, uh, the Department of Motor Vehicle, and she later went on to what you know as revenue. In, in revenue. Yeah. Uh, so we were making together before taxes probably uh, a little less, about $1,800 a month. Wow. Yeah. So back then, how long was the academy? We were in there for like 24 weeks. And what is it now? That's close to the same. Yeah, it's still around the same. Around the same. Yeah, 22, so 23 weeks. you go through the academy, and I, I've heard this, but I, I want to hear you say it. So I know now officers are hired. They go through the academy, and then they go through an FTO program. Right. Field training, which is how long? Uh, now it's it's nearly a year long. Okay. They're so almost in there a year. You go, you go through the academy. You graduate the academy. What happened after that? For me, mm -hmm. I, I went to second district, which uh, on dog shift, and I rode with a guy named uh, uh, my training officer was Terry Wilson. It wasn't the FTO program; it was just on the job training back then. They just put us in a car, and he was showing me what to do. And that lasted a couple of weeks, and I got a, a call from a guy who was over the street crimes unit, mm -hmm. and he said, "Hey, man, I hear you're a pretty good young kid. We're looking for some guys uh, in the street crime street crime unit." You want to come? I said, hell, man, I don't know nothing about being a detective. <laughs> but you didn't know nothing about being a cop. <laughs> about nothing. But I, I'll come. <laughs> I was just, I was ambitious, man. I was going. So he said, okay, sound like a deal. I'll get with you in a few days. Well, the next day, I get a call from High Pockets, which was Lieutenant Carl Dabity. He's, uh, he's deceased, but we called him High Pockets. His son became my riding part and those in Baton Rouge would know he later became the chief of police after I was gone. Uh, he, he also became a chief of police, but his father called me and he said, Hey man, I understand you, you can ride a motorcycle. I said, that's why I came here. And, uh, he said, uh, well, listen, uh, we have an opening and I want you to, to come in. I said, well, I got a problem. He said, what's the problem? I said, I just accepted a position <laughs> with street as a detective in street crimes, he said, which one you want to do? I said, hell, I want to ride the motorcycle. 
I want to be a motorcycle cop. He said, well, let me call Rogelio, who was, uh, and he too became a chief of police. Rogelio was in charge, of, he was a lieutenant in charge of street crime at the time. Hadn't been made chief yet. And uh, he gave me a, he called him and said, hey, man, look, this boy LaDuff really want to ride a motorcycle. So Rogelio called me back. And he said, hey, man, tell you what, I rode a motorcycle. I know how it is. Go do that for a couple of years. When you get it out your system, call me, and I'll take you into street crime. Well, didn't work that way. I stayed in motors for 20-something, 20 21 years. But you're talking about a matter of weeks. Weeks. Out from when academy. you were out the academy. Didn't know shit <laughs> didn't know nothing well and and i'll tell y'all now about the curse words we might say a couple of those it's not like when you see chief uh didn't know on nothing. the news but so okay well let me ask you this because i know obviously from from our family that we don't have any law enforcement officers right we always make the joke we probably have more heathens <laughs> yeah. in our family um which is fine but what made the whole law enforcement aspect? I know I, we have bricklayers and contractors and all kind of other stuff. Why law enforcement? I, I saw a cop when I was a little boy. I saw a cop, and I can honestly say I live my dream. And mm -hmm. I, I've told you this your whole life, that you can be successful at anything, but if you're successful at something you love, it's not even a job anymore. It's just going through life, right? Mm -hmm. So we grew up in the country. Uh, in West Baton Rouge, rural area. My grandfather was a, a farmer. My dad was a house painter. Um, you know, we walked barefooted. We were poor. We, I'm telling you, you know, everybody talk about your end story, but they need to see your whole story, all right? You got to know the humble beginnings, and then you can judge what a person has or what he's done. So we would, it was the Christmas holiday, I mean, I'm sorry, Easter holiday, and my fourth grade teacher, who is one of my favorite people, her name was Miss Melba Herson, gave us an assignment when we were getting off for uh, for that Easter break. And back then, it's not like school is now. We had like, I think, 17, 18 weeks off for each holiday. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, it was like the kids off for a couple of days today. Looked like we were off for like <laughs> Two and a half months, man, back then. But I remember her giving us an assignment. Ms. Hurston said, when you come back, I want you to bring back a theme paper. And the title of it was, What Do I Want to Be When I Grow Up? Well, I remember going to Baton Rouge during that break because we didn't get many toys during Christmas. Hell, it was five of us. My mom and dad didn't have a lot of money. But we knew that mass, Easter mass, was big in our family. And we were going to get some good-looking clothes. So all the shopping back then was in downtown Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you know it, Kel, mm -hmm. being at Cartana Mall and being at the Mall of Louisiana, right. Perkins Road, Town Center. There wasn't none of that there. Everything was downtown. I remember going downtown with my mom and dad, my four sisters, and we were crossing the street. And I remember when we crossed that street, I saw a motorman. My mom didn't see him. My dad didn't see him. My sisters paid no attention to him. But when I saw him, I was awed. I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. This big old man with these tall black boots on and these tight pants that fit his body real close and, and this shirt with stuff on it shining like new money. And he was standing up with his left foot on the running board and his left hand on the handlebar and he was working the plunger to cross the traffic, the pedestrian traffic, at the signal head. And I remember just stopping and looking at that man. I couldn't move, I, I wanted to go with him. I was like, this is my new daddy. And I'm going with this man. And I remember him looking down 
He didn't say anything, and he tweaked my cheek. Hmm. And I was done, man. I was done. I knew right then and there that I wanted to be a motorcycle policeman. So I went home. I got out that little green spiral notebook, and I remember sitting down at the kitchen table in my mom and dad's old house, and I wrote the title, When I Grow Up, I Want to Be a Motorcycle Policeman Who, who Was in Charge of All the Police. And I live my dream. Hmm. Um, that's and that's that's what we're about, man. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. That's what you do. I mean, I I want I want cops to understand. I want mamas and daddies to understand. Don't take your children away. You don't know who might influence them right. to be something, do something, or become something later in life. I'm gonna tell you what I just thought about. You know, we get asked all the time in in meetings and interviews that we do about community policing. That story That's community is community policing to That's me, community right? policing. People always say it's, you know, you get in a community. That is community policing. That's Just community taking policing. a second to tweak a kid's cheek or anything like that. I've told cops all over this country, every class I've ever done, when you get out the car, somebody is looking at you. And every little boy, every little girl wants to be you. Mm-hmm. I don't give a damn if you're putting the whole family in jail. Take the time to talk to that child. Right. Tweak a cheek, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's how we go about life. I mean, I watch you with the kids with, that you coach, and whether they win, lose, or draw, whether you know some of them can't hit a baseball, some of them can't shoot the basket. If you put the basket on the floor, they couldn't get it in the hole. But it's the reaction we have, you have with them. I, I see you. They come to you. They hug you. They on your knees. You know, if they hurt, you got to kiss their little elbows. Whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to do. That, that that's what we missing, man. And you know, I, I think about that all the time. I had one of the parents call me yesterday, matter of fact, and uh, one of my little ball players in, in basketball got in trouble at school. And you know, the mom was like, "I think I'm gonna hold him out of practice." And you know, me and the dad, the dad's a big time principal at a high school here, a principal. And he's like, "What do you think we should do?" I said, "Bring him to practice. Don't keep him out. Bring him to practice. Bring him to me." And we've got a plan. And I know what I'm going to do, and he's going to learn that lesson. But when you look at these kids, I've got a black kid, I've got a white kid, a couple black kids, a couple white kids, an Asian kid, and they don't know any difference. You know, you've seen it when they walk in the gym. One's on this knee, one's on that knee. They all kissing me on top of my head. You know, the, a couple weeks ago we playing at uh, the gym off Foster. One of them hurt his elbow. He comes on the side, and he's like, I'm like, well, come on, we got to get back in. What's it going to take? He said, you got you to kiss it. <laughs> Mama kiss it. You got to kiss it. So I kissed it. My assistant coaches kissed it. We all kissed it, and he got back in the game. You know, I, I think these kids you know, learn it. You know, I, you, you just say, I, I tell this story when I do a diversity class. I always tell a story about when you were born. You know, I wanted a daughter, yeah, and, and you know that. I, know. I mean, we've talked about that a hundred <laughs> times. I wanted a daughter. Girls, take care. Yeah, I know you're going to put my old ass in a, <laughs> a, a nursing home and run me off right quick. But, you know, a daughter would take care of me. But So I wanted a daughter, and once we got over the initial shock, I remember going down there where they had you in the nursery, and, man, I looked at you, and I'm like, man, that's mine. I got to take care of that dude. Till he's at least 18. And at the same time, I'm having this talk with myself. They brought in this big, fat baby. This is the biggest baby. The baby <laughs> filled up that little dish. You know that dish that they put the babies in? Yeah. They She filled up the whole dish, man. Uh, this is the biggest baby. And I know it was a little girl because they had the pink stuff, right? So I'm looking, and they parked 
her little baby vehicle thing, that transporter right next to your transporter that mm-hmm. you were in. And I'm like, move that baby. I mean, I'm like banging on the window saying, move that big baby. That baby going to eat my little baby. I mean, I didn't want it. And so I started watching the little baby, man, because they wasn't paying any attention to me. And, and I started thinking about, you know, when you would cry, she would cry. Mm. And then later, a baby way in the back, because this thing was full of babies, right? And, and the little baby way in the back would cry. Then you would cry, she would cry, or when she would cry. Y'all were all feeding off each other. So I often think that if they'd have gave me that big baby and let me take that child home, this child was a white female, you sitting next to you, a black male baby, and if I could have brought y'all both home at the same time, you know what I'd have right now? A son and a daughter. Mm-hmm. They I wouldn't have no difference. It yep. would, man, we do this. You know, all this mess that we see, we, we create a lot of this stuff. Man. We do. We do. And, you know, I, I think about that going back to you being on the department. You know, I know as a, a, a millennial, as they call us, and, and being in the working environment, I don't think we as a whole understand what your generation went through in work, right? I, I talked to some of my friends, whether they're doctors, attorneys, teachers, whatever, and the battles that we see in work, in the workplace, are, it's all on emotion. Mm-hmm. It, it's not about business, it's not about true black and white, it's about emotion. I didn't deserve to be told that, I didn't deserve this, you know, I earned this, I earned that, and I think about, because your generation, you're 62, 63 this month, right? Yeah. So what you saw in elementary, middle school, high school, and then you turn around and years later you go join a police force. And if you think about your commanders or your leadership on a department, those men were a generation above you. So what did they see in elementary, middle, and high school? Right. So imagine the, the racial tensions and the things you were told and how much shit you had to eat. I'm not talking about emotional, I don't like the way that email came off or I didn't get that promotion that I deserved. I'm talking about real, real. life shit. Right. And not only, and I think about law enforcement in this way, not only was, was it stuff that you had to see in the department, but the stuff that you saw your coworkers, coworkers give the community, right? That had to be some hard stuff. Did you experience yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that was all kind of craziness, man. I mean, I remember hearing somebody use the N-word on, on, on the radio. And, and you know, I don't know. It was like, whoa, what do you say, man? And, you know, we, we, we were the generation that started questioning that. Mm-hmm. The generations before us couldn't. You know, when the first cops came on in Baton Rouge, they had to ride with somebody, and they can only enforce laws with black folk, you know? Uh, we were the generation that was standing on our own ground. I'm not saying equal ground, but our own ground. Mm-hmm. And then we, I was one of those guys that started opening doors. I remember I, I idolized a guy named Frank Washington. Frank retired from us, and he's now retired a second time from EBRSO, and Frank was uh, was the first guy, first black guy that I saw do something be, besides just be the police. Uh, when I was going through the process, Frank is the one who came to my house as a recruiter, 
and, and interviewed people in my neighborhood and, you know, did all of that. He sat down with me and Mama and talked about uh, what it was and checked me out to make sure I was qualified. And, you know, I knew he was a, a firearms instructor. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, that's me, you know. So Frank kind of was opening those doors. And then I came along and I became like a lead instructor. So I started opening doors for cats to come behind us. So just think about it, though. Time, time fixed a lot of stuff, man. When, when I went there uh, in 83, I was probably the fourth black motorcycle officer in the mm. history of our department. And at the time, we had all those people in our, on the job. It was just two of us, two, two black guys riding motorcycles in the whole city. Now you see young black men riding the motorcycles all over town, all you over. know. So we feel like we opened some doors. But, yeah, was that crazy stuff? Yeah, man. Right. But I mean, you, it still you, is. You had to handle it. Right. You know, I remember writing a letter about some stuff I saw, you know, the way a guy handled up on a, a, a civilian at a, at a crash. And uh, he didn't say nothing. He didn't, you know, throw out no, no crazy words. We, we probably would have got into it. But it's just the way he treated an elderly man. I, I put it on paper. You know, I, I stood up to it, and uh, the guy got some time. And you know, I imagine that's still a hard thing to do. You know, it. So, in before we started the business years ago and got into the whole entrepreneurial thing, even when we're working in corporate America, I know for me it was different. If I saw something that was out of the norm, that's an easy fix, yeah. right? Um, I had thirty two hundred employees, and I would get complaints all the time. I had a very active HR. You make a phone call, you get it handled. I think about law enforcement, even now, right? I've got some of my closest friends in the world that work for BRPD, the sheriff's office, the state. When you see something that's not right, that you think pushes the borders, I can just imagine how within the police department, and this is one of the things that the community questions a lot, how do you address that, right? You've got a union, you work with these guys every day, um, you're in the community. You're not always dealing with with Girl Scouts. You, obviously, you know you got to treat everybody. Each you got to have a quick, you know, a short memory. Every scene is a new scene. Every stop's a new stop. But when you see a, a fellow officer not do it the exemplary way, it's hard to have that conversation. I've never been in that position, but I have to imagine it's a hard thing to do. Well, you know, I you stand up on you stand up for what's right. You know. Uh, Listen, I worked with, I was blessed, man. I worked with some of the best guys in my career. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I had the Ricky Brewers and the Tommy Walshes and the, the Vignes and the, you know, Willie Vicks. And I mean, guys that taught us how to do it the right the way. The right way, yeah. You know, I, I was the only only brother on there, but I wasn't excluded from anything. Right. I was just part of that family, man. I, I was blessed. I, I had, they taught me how to be a cop. You know, I went there without any experience. Man, them guys didn't know me. Nobody knew me. I, didn't, I hadn't been on the job but a couple of weeks. And here I am, this new kid. They probably thought I was a plant from IA or something right, coming in and infiltrate them to figure out what they were doing right or wrong. And, uh, you know, it didn't take long for me to become part of the crew and, and, and go about our business. And, and they taught me how, you know, I, I think, you know, my, my administrators like Captain Scrantz that let me – pursue becoming a chief if he wouldn't have let me go to all these schools and all these you know um, 
my sergeants, letting me get this, the education to one day become a chief of police, my story wouldn't have come to fruition. Well, you know? and, and let's go back to that. So fast forward from being in Motors, I know you went to the training academy next, and you alluded to that, but what was it that made you say, I'll go to the academy? What, what was your big I, I thought process? I got into an on? argument with one of my supervisors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to knock him out, man. <laughs> we, we got into a bad argument. Uh, there was a storm coming through. And I was a senior guy, man. I'd been an acting sergeant for a long time. And the lieutenant wasn't there. Uh, the captain was out of pocket. And decisions had to be made. The weather, you know, was had, had, the wind had picked up. And, you know, so we, we kind of did what we do during the, the brunt. It was more of a tropical storm instead of a hurricane. But the winds got up pretty good. And, you know, we had signals out. And so I got the guys. I said, hey, man, load up some temporary signs. You know, let's get some sandbags. We're going to go out and start, you know, checking intersections and putting stop signs out because we knew citizens was going to start moving. And, again, we tried to call, never got in touch with any of the brass. So I made a decision, you know. I mean, I knew what to do. I'd been in motors a very long time at that point. I'd been there 20 years. So we went out and we started doing things. And my supervisor called me and he said, uh, Hey, man, I need you to come in. And he kind of jumped me about why was I doing what I was doing. I said, hell, it had to be done, you know. And uh, he's like, I didn't tell you to do that. Did you check? I said, answer your phone, and I would have, mm. you know. So it kept going back and forth. And I remember calling Chief Rohilly, I mean, um, Chief Inglade. Chief Inglade was the chief at the time. And I said, Chief, if you value me as an employee, he said, I do, Jeff. You're a good kid. I said, well, if you do, you're going to transfer me because – I'm going to knock this guy out, and you're going to have to fire him. <laughs> no sense. <that. laughs> I was going to duke him, man. I was going to put dots on his eye. So it really – it was time for me to go. Mm -hmm. But, you you know, when you're comfortable and you're good and you're in a routine, it's hard to make that decision, Kel, which you've had to make. But when there's a comfort level to everything, you got to then start thinking about maybe my next move should be. So I knew I could go to training fit in, do well. I had been teaching as an adjunct instructor my whole career. I've been doing the inspections, uh, you know, DT instructor, driving instructor. I, I was there with him a lot and had been assigned on a TDY kind of assignment a couple of times. So I asked him if I if he would transfer me to the uh, training academy. So he, he I, did. I know your whole career you were vocal about wanting to be chief. So did you – were you would you say that to people every day? You would tell folks that every time I did a class, I tell anybody who would listen, supervisors, one, coworkers. It didn't matter who, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would tell supervisors. I do a class and it's a room full of supervisors. One day I'm going to be the chief, and I had some people tell me I was crazy. Hmm. And I remember one guy. I called him. I, I didn't mess with people who who weren't about it. But there was one guy. We never really got along. You know, it's just that guy, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we did our jobs. We were okay. But he kept saying, man, it'll never happen. You'll never be chief. It'll never happen. And I remember calling him. And uh, I said, hey, man, uh, next time you, you want to get in touch with me, you know what you got to do, huh? He said, what? I said, you got to call me chief. Hmm. You know, <laughs> so I did go back and get So him. And you got to realize, so at that point, that there had not been a black chief. First one, no. Right. Had not been. So years go by, and... Kip Holden becomes the mayor. My man. My man, Kip. Which, he, we're going to get Kip on this show we got at some to, point. I want you and we Kip. We got some stories. Boy. Yeah, I, I, I want y'all to talk about Katrina. <laughs> yeah. I really want to hear you and Kip talk about that Katrina time. But So, when that process goes out, you're what rank at that point? 
at the academy. A sergeant? I just made sergeant. Yeah, just made sergeant. So when those conversations started coming about, did you think you had a shot or were you just going to go no, through the process to get I, your name I, I knew I had a shot. I knew it was my time. I, I never doubted this. I never relented on the fact that I'd be chief of police. Mm. I mean, you were in the house. You yeah, know, I, yeah. You heard it. You, you know, I did. I tell mom, I say, listen, I know we're not making the most money. Time's hard. Don't worry <laughs> about that water bill. We're going to get that water back on. I say, if you just bear with me one day, it'll yeah. be okay. And, uh, and just never doubted it. Well, let me ask you this. And I want your opinion on it. I have mine. What do you think was the single most important thing that you did in your career to be chosen to be the first African-American chief of police in Baton Rouge? I I think it was my connection with the community. Mm-hmm. Because, see, people saw me when I was chief. They thought that was the first time that I started hanging out in the community. They don't know that for years, every morning, I went to a school. I didn't get paid for it. I didn't get overtime for it. I got dressed, and I met the school buses at this school. And when the kids got off, I talked to the kids and I interacted with the kids and talked to the teachers. I did that because I believe that's our function, Mm -hmm. you know. So uh, then I took, you know, the Explorer Academy over and brought those kids to Mississippi. And uh, just my community work, I, I think it was payback. I didn't expect to get paid and I wasn't doing it. For an attaboy that one day somebody said, I just knew that doing it the right way was going to give me a, give me an opportunity to fulfill what I long dreamed about. And, and that was my answer, too. And that's how I know, you know, that's truly what it was. I think those same kids who, because you did that for years. Years. So you go from middle school kids, right, whether it was at Broadmoor or McKinley mm-hmm. or Scotlandville, wherever you were, all those places. Then they went to high school. Then they became adults. They went to college. They became working people. And, you know, whether it was through a parade or mm-hmm. writing them a ticket or whatever it was. I mean, I know you don't meet a stranger. You'll talk to anybody. You know, so I think that's trying to say, man, you, that you run your mouth. But, you know, I think it's an attribute. You know, I, there's a lot of people who don't have that ability. Right. So. I, I do, I, and I want to hear Kip's take on that, but I think that had to be a, a, a large part of it. I yeah. really do. I, I think, I know me and Kip talked about it, but we'll get him on here one day to talk about it, but a lot of people was telling him that I was the right guy. Yeah. He, he, he told me one day, after we'd been together a few years and he started to trust me a little bit, he said, man, you know, when I was in that process and had just won the election and I got these positions to name, you know, people within the department, the community, was saying, hey, man, you need to take Jeff. He's the right guy for you. And we had six good years, man. Well, and so I was there that day. I was living out of town, but I remember coming home. And I don't know if you remember this, but when Kip called the house phone, I answered the phone. I just so happened. That's back when we were using house phones. And I never forget, this was around, and I forget who you, and we don't have to say the name, but you were in a runoff, not the runoff, but... Mm-hmm. In the finalist right. they had spot, two other people with two other people, and we knew you'd be finding out soon. And uh, the phone rang at the house, and I just answered the phone. And uh, Kip must have caught my voice, and he said, "Hey, Kelly, this is the mayor. How you doing?" I said, "I'm doing good, Mr. Kip. How you doing?" He said, is "Your dad around there?" I said, "Yeah, he, he he's here." He said, "Can he hear me?" And I y'all weren't around me. I was 
either in my old room. I forget where I was. And uh, probably had some girls snuck in. No, I, I, don't I know, know you did that. No, I was with my wife at that point, boy. <laughs> oh, I don't say yeah, that. Okay, I'm glad. God, damn, I'm, you gonna start shit. I'm just glad. So, <laughs> I know when you were a teenager living that mile. <laughs> your daughter-in-law gonna get you, boy. So anyway, he said. Uh, he said, "Go, go, give him the phone." He said, uh, "I'm about to tell him he's the chief, but don't tell him." He said, "Just go give him the phone." And I, I did. I remember going hand him the phone, and I, I still, and I, my memory's not the greatest, but I still remember you standing there just saying, "Yes, sir. I, I promise you. Yes, sir. You got it. You got it." And I remember you started crying, and you hung the phone up, and it, it, it all moved fast after that. Yeah. Uh, but one of my biggest memories, and I'm gonna say this because we talked about it uh, earlier in the show about you know not making any money and all of that. <laughs> I remember. So you went from. That's the old building off of Mayflower, where yeah. the uh, the academy was and everything, and the chief's office back then, yeah. right? So, I remember you went from that little bitty office in training to when we came up there, we did a little party in the conference room mm-hmm. at the chief's office, and you had the the big office now. And we were in there, and one of the first times I came in there, people people don't notice, but you used to keep every pay stub mm-hmm. from when you were on motorcycles and when you started. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember you sitting there looking. I know it wasn't about the money. Money's not what you were concerned about, but it was just a promise that you made to my mom, right? Because mm-hmm. we all do that. We none start off where we want to be. Mm-hmm. And when you're with your significant other, you you tell them that, hey, I, we're going to get here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I promise you. And I remember you sitting there looking at those pay stubs, and that was a pretty big jump from the last check that you made on in the academy to – being the chief, yeah, like fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big jump from check to check, and uh, I mean, what did that feel like your first you know, couple of days in office? You know what I was looking at on your pay stub. There's a pay code, mm-hmm. and what I was looking at was I knew there was not another code that I could get that would be higher than the code that mm-hmm. was on that check. So the first check I had was at somebody in the academy just the lowest code they could possibly be. And if you went through there, as I moved along and went from that to, you know, you get your longevity raises and then you top out at longevity, you make sergeant, lieutenant. I never made lieutenant. I went from sergeant to chief. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see all of the, the numbers, you know, the lieutenant, the captain, major, chief. I went from sergeant to chief, but I know I was looking at those numbers, man that I went from the lowest code that you can possibly have to the last and highest code that you can possibly have. And that's what it's about. Let me ask you this. I know people have seen a lot of the uh, the high points of your career and a lot of the low ones. But if you look back on, what were you, Chief, six years? Mm-hmm. What would you say is your biggest regret of those a, six I years? I have a bunch of regrets, man. Uh, my... There's regrets and there's mistakes. Mm-hmm. My biggest mistake was leaving Dennis during Katrina. Orleans. Dennis was shot. You know, everybody look at Hurricane Katrina. You know, we were a new administration, new chief, you know, and then along comes Hurricane Katrina. We ride out the storm. We think we're okay. And then we hear about all these people leaving New Orleans. And man, I mean, I don't think the whole story, we've never told. Our story. New Orleans have told their story. Right. But Baton Rouge has never told our story. It's got a whole story, story itself. And uh, 
it's it's a story there. And and I remember um, I had three guys shot on the tenth of August, and uh, Terry Malonson was killed. Uh, Neil Noel was hit in the knee, and Dennis was shot in the, in the back of the head. And uh, they couldn't treat him successfully here, so they had to send him down to New Orleans, to Turo, to get the treatment that he needed. And I'd given his father my number, Mr. Smith. And I said, man, if you ever need anything, Mr. Smith, you call me. So in the midst of Hurricane Katrina, it's in the middle of the day, I'm at the EOC, I'm answering questions, I'm, you know, man, we got, we're getting ready to set up a mega uh, shelter, you know, the mayor's telling me all of this, I'm trying to move people around, working with my staff, trying to get this done, and my phone rings, and I look down, and it's Mr. Smith, and I said, wow, he must have somebody stuck in New Orleans, because everybody was calling me, can you right, find us, help favor, us find, yeah. yeah, can you help us find a place to stay, can you come send somebody, get us, can you... Man, can you help me get out of New Orleans? What's the traffic doing? I mean, my phone was just being inundated by, by family and friends that would have folks stuck in New Orleans. So I saw Mr. Smith. I asked, hey, Mr. Smith, how you doing? He's in a very calm voice. He's a calm-speaking man. I remember him saying, hey, Chief, how are you? I said, just kind of going through it right now. What can I do for you? And he said, well, you know you told me that if I ever needed anything, I could call. And I was like get to it you know who you got right. where are they what and and he said uh i said yes sir and i meant that what you what you need he said i need you to help me get my son home they're getting ready to transfer him his wife was with him and we don't know where they're going to send him because he was moved to new orleans he was in new orleans at, a, at Turo, right and he was getting ready to be moved because the power was out the flood the water the whole shape of New Orleans. They had no idea what they was basically sending him and his wife to the Superdome. Wow. And from there, his wife was going to be shipped somewhere and then he was going to be shipped with patients. And and I just remember freezing. And I remember just this sickening. Like I, I feel I could think about it and I feel it right now. Literally. Mm-hmm. This worst feeling I've ever felt in my stomach and I mean, I felt like a piece of shit, man. I forgot one of my guys. Mm-hmm. In doing all those checks, going through the storm process, I forgot that Dennis was in a hospital in New Orleans. I forgot him. So we mounted up SRT, fire department, EMS. We sent a couple of different wagons down there. They got through the water, they got through everything, and they got to Dennis and his wife, and they put him in a, uh, in, you know, had the right people, of course. It wasn't just police and, and fire that went down, but EMS, all three of our public safety uh, agencies got together and ran down there and rescued Dennis and his wife and got him back home. Wow. I, I forgot him. Hmm. I'll never forget anything else, though. I bet you that. How's Dennis doing today? He's good. He just retired. Hmm. We got him to retirement. I'm, I'm happy for him. I had dinner with him um, a couple of days ago. In fact, I had dinner with Dennis Neal and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Malonso. And we're, we're going to get them on here, too. We, we got to get them uh, on. Man, I remember Terry's funeral to this day. That That was like the start of the 
giving falling officers what they really deserve from this community. But we asked the community. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, you know, people are always talking about I cried, I cried, I cried. Yeah, I cried. I cried because, I mean, I loved that boy. I knew his family. I knew his grandfather. I knew his uncle. I knew, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just a quality, quality kid. I knew a lot about him, and uh, I had trained him in the academy. And uh, being able to come from training and then go as a chief, you, you get to know everybody. Right, you recruited those guys. You yeah, touched you, them. You, you, you train them, you touch them, you're with them every day. And Terry was just special. He had his mother's gift of uh, of Christ. Uh, Miss Melanson is the most faith-filled woman I've ever met. Mm. And Terry had that, that same belief in Christ that uh, – that his, that his mom and his dad and his family shared. I remember the picture you had in your office of Terry on your motorcycle. How old was Terry in that picture? Uh, young, young, young. I don't I don't remember. He was young. And then I had another picture with him where we just looking at each other uh, when he was in the academy. It was just a connection between the two of right. us. Just wasn't saying a thing. Nobody else in the picture. It's just somebody took a picture of me and Terry just looking at each other. I just, I love that boy, man. Yeah, I remember that 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 funeral uh, by far. It was yeah. just uh, it was amazing. That Terry's death killed a lot of things. We 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 kind of started a full time SRT because of that. We started really looking at the training that narcotics and and everybody got then, and uh, how we would go about search warrants. Uh, right. I vowed to his mother that I wouldn't let Terry have died just for nothing that we were going to make quality changes and and we did we made well good and, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about on our additional podcast is from you know the july incident you know i know people here in the community remember seeing that image of you you know getting out the the car with me on essen lane going into our lady of the lake hospital and you had on blue jeans and a t-shirt we, we'll really talk to them about that day um, about all the things that transpired that day. I think these are all things that the community need to know, irregardless of what your position is on law enforcement. Um, I think one of the things that that we both take pride in is we sit in the middle on a lot of things. You know, like I said, I've got some close friends that are cops. I've got some close friends that don't like cops, right, on both sides of it. Family, same way. And we, we try to understand all of it because there's truth in all of it. You know, and that's one of the things that we hope to do with this podcast. The truth is always in the middle somewhere. It's not necessarily my version. It's not your version. The truth is somewhere in between what we both think mm-hmm. and, and what we both feel. You know, so at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's a lot of what people need to hear. And uh, I think if you think about some of the stuff that we talked about today, I know we we live it now. When we're done with this podcast, we get in the car, we go to Houston, we go to Beaumont, Lake Charles, and we're going to touch people. We're going to train them. We're going to help them be safe. We're going to help their businesses. But just find a way to live out your passion. And I think that's one of the biggest things, you know, that that I got from you. And, and I'll tell this quick story because it might help some kid somewhere, some parent somewhere raising a child. I remember all those years you were on motorcycles and we were in that little bitty house. And I do. You know, money was tight. I remember the, the couple nights that you would work until 10, 11 o'clock, and mom would lie and say, 
oh, it's about to be a storm. The power's going to go out. <laughs> you know, and she's lighting candles and not a damn drop of rain, nowhere in sight. And I'm like. Lights was off, boy. Yeah, just five o'clock was coming. You know, lights was going to get cut off. But, you know, the house felt so big, even though it was so small, but I had everything I needed. And I remember the neighborhood, the house was so thin, the neighborhood was so small, I used to hear your motorcycle pull up. And I remember from probably seven, eight years old until the day I'm going to talk about when you would come home, you'd always prep for the next day. Mm-hmm. You'd you know, shine your brass, shine your shoes, get everything ready. Mom would iron your uniform. And I remember you used to always make me go wet the rag for you to shine your shoes. And I never could understand it. I would be like, why in the hell? He get up and go wet the rag. You've got the rag. The house ain't but this big. The bathroom's right there. Go wet the rag. And I don't care what I was doing. You, Kelly, come, Kelly, come here. Wet this rag. And I go wet that rag, wet it, wet it. And it must have been, I must have been 12, 13 years old. And I remember one day I heard the motorcycle hitting the, the front of the neighborhood. And, man, when you pull under that carport, we didn't have a garage. That little bitty house would shake on that motorcycle. That Harley would hit it, boy, and it will just, mm. the whole house would shake. And so I, I got up. I went and got the, the shoe shine, the little wooden deal you had with all the polish and stuff in it. I put it by the sofa. I went. I wet the rag. I wrung it out. I put everything right there. I went back in my room. I remember you came home, went through your routine, and then you hollered my name again. He said, Kelly. I said, damn, I put the stuff right there. I wet the rag. So I came in the front. I'm like, yes, sir. And you said, hey, look, you don't have to worry about wetting that rag no more. I got it from now on. And I was like, huh? And you said, I just, I just wanted you to do it without me asking you to do it. Just understand why I'm doing it and get that. Don't worry about it. I got it from now on. And I think that's it. And I know not all of our young men are fortunate enough to have a father in their life. I know you played dad to my whole neighborhood. You, you see those guys today and they still kiss you and call you dad. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing the same thing. But we've got to find those moments, whether it's an uncle, a friend, a coach, whatever. we got to find those moments to teach our young men and our young women that that's what it's about. But if you can find a way to take care of your family and do something you love, you got it. That's it. That's the fight. All right, what you want to say before I cut just, you off? Just talk to each other, man. <laughs> Love each other. Love each other. We got to get Matt man. Williams on here, too, just to, to talk about that one. Being able to sit down on the couch. Just, when you're watching the Saints beat the Rams this Sunday <laughs> at 2.05, just in case you don't know the time, reach over and just put your hand on your dad's hand and just say, hey, man, I enjoy this moment. That's it. That's it. Make those memories. Well, folks, we're going to wrap up this first one because we'll talk forever. Podcast 225, Generations Podcast. Kelly LaDuff, the ugly one, and Jeff LaDuff, the cute one, old and young. Tune in. That's it. See y'all later. Subscribe. Thank y'all. Thanks for listening to the Generations Podcast. Learn more about open eyes safety training and consulting at haveopeneyes.com.